I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Lots of what happens in the vineyards and in the winery is a direct result of the particular soils in the vineyards or the level of sunlight the area receives. But sometimes, in a few regions, vineyard management techniques are dictated by strange weather phenomena. Some of the most unique weather phenomena that impact our industry are seasonal winds that batter particular regions. The most famous of these winds is the howling, the relentless, and the forceful Mistral. The Mistral happens when low and high pressure areas up north meet, and they suck a blast of cold air from the north into the Rhone Valley. This wind races through the Rhone, accelerating on its way to ravage Provence and Languedoc. It's regular to feel winds up to 50 miles per hour, and the effects of a strong Mistral can be felt as far away as Majorca, Sardinia, and the winds can even reach across the Mediterranean to the coast of Africa. The Mistral doesn't just rip across the land close to the earth like some seasonal winds. It extends almost two miles north into the atmosphere, creating a wall of wind that's practically impossible to imagine. This forceful gale molds and changes the shapes of trees in its path. Terra Amata is an archaeological site that dates at least to 230,000 BC and might be closer to 400,000 years old. Here, we find some of the earliest evidence of man-made human dwellings, and also some of the earliest evidence that our ancestors knew how to build fires. These early inhabitants of southern France dealt with the Mistral by building low stone walls to the northwest of their fires. Then, and ever since, the Mistral has had resounding effects on architecture, culture, and agriculture. For instance, farmhouses are mostly south-facing, with most of their backsides bearing the brunt of the wind. Windows, they have shutters for Mistral season. Patio furniture, it's heavy. And some taller structures, such as bell towers, are constructed with wrought ironwork instead of walls to allow the wind to simply pass through. 
it's also a time of rest for those who work outside. House painting, renovating, and repairs, they're all put on hold during the days when the mistral is blowing. The mistral greatly affects agriculture. The plants get little rainfall to begin with, and the mistral dries everything out even more. It's a major contributing factor to wildfires, which spread at alarming rates when the wind is blowing at high speed. The wind blows away dust and loose organic matter, leaving behind a rugged landscape. Tall, thin plants, they don't stand a chance. It's low-growing bushes that survive here, so you usually find bush vines that require intensive hand labor to maintain and harvest. Other plants that can survive in the winds are low-growing bushy plants, such as the famous flavors of garig that we find in lavender, sage, rosemary, and thyme. The plants that can survive in high winds have become mainstays of Provencal cuisine. So the mistral does have a bright side. It can keep air moving to prevent frost, it can blow away pollution and leave cloudless skies and sunny days in its wake. It brings us the special wines of the Rhone Valley and Provence, and it can help shape regional cuisine. So next time you're drinking some Bandol or Rhone wine, and you're eating some food that's been cooked with herbs of Provence, think of that howling mistral wind and everything that it's brought to your table. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand Lyle Fast on the show. Hello, sir. How are you? Good. I'm doing absolutely fantastic on this beautiful final spring day. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too and hear you. <laughs> so you were in the Boston area studying film. I was in the Boston area studying film. Um, I'm a native New Yorker and I went to uh, Boston University. I was a film major. I did not go to film school there, which is uh, what happens after uh, the undergraduate. And I loved the critical aspect of studying film. I did not like the collaborative filmmaking aspect of it at all. Uh, so all that did was leave me uh, as a really huge film snob. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody likes to watch films with me at all. Well, I mean, you've only thrown me out of your house when I watch films uh, <laughs> once or twice. Because you don't agree with me. I mean, isn't that what everybody does? <laughs> this is epic, bro. Exactly. Don't you understand the symbolism? <laughs> You're the only guy who's like, ah, oh, my life to live, whatever. <laughs> it's 
true. I'm a critic. I mean, like definitely. And that's helped me in all aspects of my life, whether it be my wine career or, you know, just what if I pick up a book or anything. I'm definitely, as someone that is very close to me says, sometimes I get a little bit over analytical. But how did the wine thing start? How did the wine thing start? If my stepmom is listening, I'm going to have to give her the credit that she finally deserves. Basically, I was at college. I didn't have a job. And I was just a lazy 18-year-old, you know. And my stepmom was like, you need to get a job. And I'm like, what? I don't really know what I can do. She's like, you like reading? Work in a bookstore. I'm like, no. She's like, well, how about wine? You liked wine at the, uh, you know, uh, Yom Kippur or something. And I'm like, yeah, I did. Okay. Watch around the corner. I mean, this shows you how, like, lazy I was in college. Walked around the corner to the wine store. And I said, are you hiring? And they said, sure, you can be a cashier. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, I'm 18. How am I going to taste wine and like learn about it? They're like, I won't, I will leave the name of the wine store out because what they are asking me to do is illegal. Um, they basically said, if you pay for the wine of cash, you can take home whatever you want. And I said, done deal. And I started working there. It was called the blank blank. And uh, I was taking home cases of wine. I'm embarrassed to say some of the wines, but, you know, you can look back and laugh, you know, Pedrinselli, Zinfandel, uh, things like this. And I was experimenting and just kind of bringing home mixed cases, inviting friends over and tasting and seeing what, what I liked and what I didn't like. Um, and that's kind of how it started. But I didn't have my wine epiphany at that store, which is unusual considering most people have their wine epiphany usually at their first wine job or the first time they've tasted wine, or maybe not the first time, but the first couple times. Because I started down the route of California, and that is why I didn't have my wine epiphany, to be honest. I was buying cases of California wine. I'm like, these are good. They're juicy. They're interesting, you know, but there's just, I, I didn't have it. And I always look at the white burgundy section. This was when California wine was like cheap and affordable. You can get a good bottle for 10 or $15 or even, you know, 18 or 20. Uh, now it's a little different. Um, so I was getting lots of good, interesting bottles. But I'd always longingly look at the white burgundy section or the glass case in front with the bottles of Mouton. And I'd be like, I wonder what those taste like. And then I quit. Um, it just I just wasn't satisfied there because at the end of the day, I was just a glorified cashier. I was mopping the floors and whatnot. And then my next job was not in wine, but it was peripheral to wine. And it's what really got me started. It was at a store called Brookline Liquor Mart in Boston, Massachusetts. It's a legendary store. Um, and I was the cheese guy there. Um, I had my own cheese counter. I had 145 different cheeses. You know, I went through, you know, I went uh, kind of like really wanted to have the best selection of cheese in Boston. You know, I got all these different importers and I'm like, I read about one cheese and I'm like, I've got to get this cheese. Even if some old woman only makes six wheels a year in the Haute-Savoie, I needed a wheel of it. I don't care how much it cost. And actually that was my ruin. And this will be a funny story. Basically, the reason I got laid off from this job was because there was this particular Comte made by this particular farmer and I had to have it. And if you special order Comte, it doesn't come in these nice pre-sliced, you know, kind of packaged things you see in Whole Foods. It comes in 90-pound wheels, all right? If you've ever seen like a huge truck at like a way station or something, think of those wheels, except it's cheese. So the guy comes in with the hand truck, and he's got this huge wheel of cheese on it. And the whole store just looks at me. And they're like, is that for you? I'm like, yes, it's for me. But you don't understand. It's the best Comte. And they're like, oh, really? 
it's really good. You think you can move that much Comte? I'm like, sure. And typically like a good day for me moving cheese would be moving five to six pounds of cheese. This was one 90 pound thing of cheese. So make a long story short, three days later, I got let go. And the place that I worked at was called the Mousetrap within Brooklyn Liquor Mart. And they tossed me out of there. And that's it. And people are still eating that Comte to this day. <laughs> <laughs> but then with the wine thing, you picked oh, yeah. it back up. The wine, well, basically, that store also had a huge wine section, and the wine consultant guys became really good friends of mine. And, you know, I would match the cheeses to the wines for their Saturday tastings. Uh, and then I, we would, I was in this tasting group of them where, and it was my first ever tasting group. And I remember the first time I ever went to this tasting group, you know, they're like, just bring a bottle. And I'm like, okay, but like, will that be enough? I mean, that shows you how ignorant I was. <laughs> they're like, no, other people will be bringing bottles too. I'm like, really? Cool. And that was uh, the tasting where I tasted Montalena for the first time, Cab, you know? And I was, that was like the most expensive wine I ever tasted at that time. I was like, this is unbelievable. I can't believe how good this is. I'm like, I need to start tasting lots of expensive wines. I want to be in this tasting group. Can we have it three, four times a week? It's cool. I'll keep bringing these $10 bottles. And, uh, and then with that group, I started- Should have asked if you could bring some Comte. I'll what, bring exactly. cheese. <laughs> exactly. I'll bring the cheese. And I did bring a lot of the cheese. And I'm still in touch with these guys, actually. Uh, I mean, they've, they've gone on to do different things. But that tasting group was really what kind of formed it all for me. That's where I tasted, you know, my first Corton Charlemagne. Uh, that's where I tasted my first. And this was, Brooklyn Liquor Mart was the importer at that time for Gigal, Bouchard, Reyes, Lafon, they had like all this crazy- The Fred Eck connection. Yes, the Fred Eck connection, exactly. Excellers. Excellers. And I, th I believe Fred still gets like, I think it's a nickel for every bottle of Gigal imported to this country and maybe like three cents for, for every bottle of Beaumard. So uh, he's chilling. But, uh, you know, and I really loved Beaumard back then. Today, not, not so much, I'll be honest. Um, you know, palettes evolve, things change. Uh, and, you know, Gigal, I really loved back then. I'll be honest. I mean, I could buy a bottle of Gigal Colt Roti or Hermitage with my discount for like under $30. And that was like a really nice thing. You're getting a great appellation. And back then, you know, I personally think the quality of the Gigal kind of like just average, you know, uh, Hermitage and Cote Roti bottles was better than it is now. And the Cote Rhone back then I thought was like, that was a great bottle of wine. My cost, because we were getting it 30% under wholesale because they were a wholesaler and a retailer, was like $3 a bottle for Gigal Cote Rhone. So that was a nice thing. And I just started really getting into it because the way my mind works, if there's some sort of field of lots of information and numbers and statistics, I'm all over it. Because before wine, it was like baseball statistics and hockey statistics and comic books and all these different things. So wine was kind of like a natural progression for me. And I've got this weird kind of memory. The, I got that Parker memory. I hate to compare myself to Parker, and this is maybe the first time I've ever done it. But you know how he always says he remembers every wine he's ever tasted? I'm like the same way. Like I remember every single wine that I've ever tasted, bad, good, and everything in between. Have you ever read symptoms for something and thought, I have a few of those? You know, Asperger's or something like that? Um, yeah, definitely. I've got some sort of like, you know, spectrum disorder. I'm not sure what it is. Um, I don't know if it's Asperger's because, you know, I'm pretty like social and I don't like freak out in like social situations. You know, I'm definitely got that New York neurotic Jew anxious thing going on, like hardcore. 
but it's more kind of general anxiety and less social anxiety. But it really helps me, I think, when it comes to wine, because I have come from the school that like anxiety is not 100% bad. There is good anxiety and there is bad anxiety. I definitely hear that. Yeah, yeah, no question. And it really, it really helps me, you know, in choosing wines and, you know, and doing all those things and evaluating wines. And that's why I have the reputation that I have, which is, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it's pretty much, you know, for quality, I'd say with my reputation, because, you know, for every, I mean, the biggest fight I have ever had in the history of my company, and we'll get to that, was over a three euro bottle of German truck and Riesling with my business partner, whether we were going to import it or not. And it was, you know, it was almost like a, you know, a teardown fight. So, because if I sell one bad bottle of wine and a customer doesn't like it, it's over for me and that customer. I've also found that when you get enthusiastic about a wine, it's like, it's hard not to want to drink that wine, like right now, like listening to you. Mm, that that's how I feel. No, no, I, I definitely agree with you, Levy, you know, because I'm so enthusiastic about so few wines. And then when I am actually enthusiastic about a wine, it's going to be great. And uh, like, there's no question. I stand behind every single wine I've ever sold. And I will always do that for, till the end of time. There's no question. And now, like, you know, if... I don't want to like jump forward a little bit, but you know, I've got this company, whatever, fast elections, and I would send email blasts and I send maybe, I sell maybe three to five wines a week. So those, those wines better be damn good or else my reputation is toast. When you're in traditional retail, you've got what, 1200 SKUs, let's say. So it's probably harder to fill a store with 1200 SKUs that you can stand behind. And there's probably some corners that are going to be cut even within the greatest stores because average Joe walks into store X and says, I need a $20 bottle of wine tonight. You don't need- $20 you, is actually pretty high. Well, pretty I mean, high. Exactly. A lot of times people are like, I, I, want, I don't want to spend more than 12. Yeah. I, I don't want to spend more than 12, but you don't know what you're getting. That's the thing that like I've always talked about because I've worked in retail before and I know in order to get X, you need to buy 10 cases of Y and you might not- You mean at the wholesale level? Yes. At the yeah. wholesale level. So you want X and yeah. the guy says to you, well, you got to take 10 cases of Y before exactly. I sell you X. And you're going to make all your money on X, but you still need to move the Y. And that's where the person who comes in the store and says, I want a $12 bottle of whatever, you give them the Y. You're not getting the best possible wine for $12. And you don't know if you are, you don't know if you're not. See, my thing is different. I choose every wine that I'm going to sell. End of story. Because I'm working 95% directly with my producers. you know. So I go and I taste and then I come back and I'm like, I want to sell this, this, and this. And they're never like, oh, if you want to sell the Volnay Caire, you have to buy 15 cases of the Alcote de Bone. That's not the way it works with my company. I have to, I choose whatever I want. So I'm not like selling a wine that in an, in, in a possible inauthentic way. Uh, and that's what I really love about my company. And I can truly stand behind every single wine. No problem at all. But it sort of seems tied into self-image. In what way? Like the idea that this, they all have to be perfect. Well, they all have to be, it's a combination of, they all have to be perfect for me. You know how like when, you know, uh, you know, the, the cheesy line, whenever you meet, you, know, you meet someone you're in love with, you know, you're perfect for me. You know what I mean? That's the way I'm looking at my wines. I want them to be perfect for me. What's perfect for me may not be perfect for someone else, but the people who follow me and the people that are on my list and buy from me kind of know what, I mean, there is a term out there that's thrown around, a Lyle wine. 
You know, it's out there. I mean, it usually means a wine that has ridiculously high acidity. That's usually the base point right there. Um, it's got to be interesting. There's got to be some interesting aspect to it. It's a young grower. It's from an overlooked vineyard. Um, it's made in a, you know, a non-traditional style or it's made in a super traditional style. There's got to be something interesting about the wine. Because at the end of the day, if I'm writing three emails a week, you're not just selling wine. You're selling stories and you're, you're, I guess you're selling image in a way, you know, in, in a weird way, like, you know, like high-end brands do because Fast Selections is a brand. There's a particular style of wine that people are going for when they're kind of looking uh, to buy from me. You know, they're not going to get, you know, Fast Selections. We sold, a good example is we sold one California wine. You know, we just wanted to try to see if it would work. It was our most abject failures in email. Because people don't come to me for California wine. I have nothing, there's nothing wrong with California wine. Well, there's something wrong with some California wines, <laughs> all right? But there's nothing really wrong with California wine, but there's so many other people out there that sell California wine. Why do I need to add to it? You know, and people are like, what is Lyle doing selling California wine? They didn't get to the point which I wanted them to get was like, well, if he's selling California wine, it must be great California wine. It was, I thought personally, but it failed because I couldn't get past kind of the pigeonhole that I put myself in. And now I know never to sell California wine again. But when you talk about image, I mean, you were a really big hip hop fan for a number of years. Mm -hmm. There's something that, you know, is very much about stylized image, although in a way that might seem more or less stylized at any moment. But mm -hmm. do you think that that played into some of your thoughts about how to present oneself in terms of selling oneself? I definitely would say so. There's no question. Um, you know, uh, one of my dreams before I wanted to open Fast Selections was, and I told all my friends in Boston this, was I want to open a wine hip-hop bar. And that back then, wine was still considered very snooty. There was no crossover appeal to like youngsters and hipsters or anything like that at all. It was still the realm of kind of like, you know, the old dude with the bow tie and the, you know, the Tostavin. That was still kind of like what wine was looked at. And uh, people were like, how could wine and hip-hop ever ever mix and now what's going on today there are commercials for Nicki minaj's you know moscato de asti i mean it happened it's definitely happened and i've always looked at myself definitely you know i mean i definitely have an image that i'm trying to i guess project out there into the world i mean the growers that i work with are definitely young i really like that most of them are and you know my instagram for example I'm a huge fan of Instagram. I think it's the best social media. You know, is two-thirds pictures of sneakers. I collect sneakers. And one-third pictures of, like, vineyards and, like, wine stuff. You know, because I just want, I want, I don't want to be pigeonholed as just, like, this particular wine person. I want to be known as more than just, like, a wine person. I always have. I found you to be a very good photographer. Oh, thank you very much. I take a lot of pride in that, no question. And, uh, but believe me, it's 50% the equipment, 50% me. <laughs> you know, with photography, the better equipment you get, you know, the better photographer you become. And that's not because, like, all of a sudden you become a better photographer. Although the equipment definitely helps a lot, you know, different lenses and stuff. But also, my background in film has helped that, just the way I will frame images and things like that. You know, if I, I love wandering around small villages uh, in France and in Germany and just trying to see interesting things and try and capture them. And I love taking pictures of vines. So who are some of the people you met back in Boston that sort of started to influence you a little bit? <sighs> I'm so ashamed to say this. I'll say there's a book first. 
the first book I ever read that influenced me was Parker's Roan book. And it was just huge. And Fred Eck did influence me. He bought cheese for me every week, but he kind of, I was kind of a peon, you know, he didn't really know who I was or anything. And he would just kind of like order the cheese, um, you know, but I knew who Fred Eck was, you know, the first person to bring all these important wines into the country. So, and I drank a hell of a lot of Gigal and Beaumard and I'm very lucky. I drank Lafon then, even when it was, it was somewhat affordable then. Um, so Fred Eck, definitely. And then, I mean, these names won't mean anything. You know, my two best wine buddies were Lance Davis, who I don't even think is involved in wine. I think he's uh, in New Hampshire now. Uh, and he runs like this weird like Halloween house. I don't know how he makes a living doing that once a year. But and then my friend Fernando Chavez, who is a wholesaler in New Mexico. Um, and these were just my boys like the you know, I saw how wine could bring people together and how much fun just three dudes sitting around tasting four or five wines could actually be, you know, and they, they were heavily, heavily influential on me. And then the biggest influence, my mentor, his name is Peter Nelson. It was my last job in Boston. And I helped open up a store called the Wine Bodega. I started there in 1998. It was in the north end of Boston, which is the most traditional, awesome Italian neighborhood in this entire country. It is just fantastic. Fantastic. And we, I helped stock that store. I started going to tastings and make, I was the California wine buyer at that store in the beginning. That was my first job buying wine. Peter was the guy who had opinions. Peter had opinions. He was a sommelier in Boston at Biba, uh, which was a very famous restaurant opened by uh, Lydia Shore, who was one of Boston's great restaurateurs. He was very very opinionated. And he was the first person to recognize something special in me, you know, because I remember we went to some tasting and there was some weird wine that I love. And I'm like, this is the wine we need to buy. We need to stack it in the front of the store. I'm like, it's amazing. It was like, I don't even remember what it was. It was probably, you know, some weird Italian grape varietal. I'm sure of it because, you know, we were in the North End. And he's like, see, that's why you're going to be good. Because you like this wine and you want to be behind it and no one is telling you not to. And you, and you're not going to stop until you sell 10 cases of that wine. I'm like, yeah, I guess. But working in that job was incredible because, you know, he was the first boss that made me feel a part of the whole wine buying process, you know, and that's when I first was meeting producers would actually come in and taste on me, you know, and all this. And I would go to the tastings and meet producers and meet the other people, you know, the people who were, you know, representing the producers. And I'm like, I really, really like this, you know, because I've always had like a worldly type of view, maybe the film background, because I was really into foreign film. And I loved just the whole kind of connection between history and travel and, you know, and obviously like an alcoholic beverage. Um, it was really, really cool for me. And I knew that this was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life in some capacity, somehow. There was nothing else. And I'm very lucky in that way because I never struggled with what I wanted to do for my career. Pretty much after Brooklyn Liquor Mart, I'm like, this is, this is it. And then the wine bodega cemented it. And leaving there was definitely one of the toughest decisions I've, I've ever had to make. I found uh, the Boston community was a little bit more intellectual than the, the New York community. I agree wholeheartedly. You, know? um, you got a lot of college professors out there and they were really into wine. And the tastings were in the wine bodega, were downstairs, very geeky. You know, we had to write all these huge write-ups for it. And people would actually like ask you questions and beyond like, is this smooth, you know, or anything like that. They wanted to know the history of the wine and this and that and the region and the producer. And that's kind of how I got kind of like 
my wine geekiness definitely started there, I would say. And, uh, and that's also introduced me to small producers and artisanal producers and handpicked selections and all, all of that. Because every wine in the store we handpicked, uh, which was definitely a challenge back then. Because, I mean, retail back then, this is 98, 90, uh, that's before Chamber Street Wines. Chamber Street Wines is kind of like, you know, the BCAD separating point, I would say, of wine retailers. And, you know, we predated it, I think. Uh, at the wine bodega, you know, it was just, you know, we arranged the wines in the store from light body to heavy. And oh my God, keeping that in order was much more difficult than anything with region or grape varietal. No question about it. But we were like, don't order any more medium weight wines. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to rearrange 4,000 bottles. Exactly. Exactly. You know, oh, but it was really good for the customers because, you know, customers are very into like, I want something light or I want something rich. So I'd be like, okay, light. And then it goes to a little bit richer. And then it goes to, you know, a little richer, a little richer here. And they were like, this is great. I don't understand why anyone doesn't do it anymore. Cause you know, those cheesy signs that say, you know, light and fruity and this and this and that and whatever. I don't like that at all. I, I still don't have an ideal way to organize wines. I think by region is just a cop-out. By varietal is even more of a cop-out. By country is the biggest cop-out. You've got to arrange them in some sort of order that's going to make it friendly for the consumer and also interesting for the wine geek and intellectual. Because uh, uh, Les Eaglemint, that restaurant, used to organize their list by weight like that, back in that, that era. I remember. That was one of the first great kind of like wine bars. I, I totally remember that. Oh. Wow, I'm getting all sentimental for Les Eaglemont. God, I haven't heard that word in so long. <laughs> well, it does make you smile. It does make me smile. It does, you know, because I am, even though I'm 39, I've been doing this since I've been 18 or 19, and I'm kind of, I feel like I'm a dinosaur already, you know? I mean, that's this industry will do that to you. It will definitely, I mean, the wine keeps you physically looking young because wine keeps you young for some reason. It's got to be, you know, all the resveratrol, I guess. Um, but... You know, doing it 20 years, I mean, you, you know, I've seen things come and go and people come and go and it's definitely an interesting thing. There's no question about it. But that era of Boston wine was kind of an older scene. and It, it was definitely an older the, scene. The current scene in Manhattan is pretty younger. The current scene is definitely younger. I mean, you, I know you have some experience in Boston as well. Um, and, uh, you know, the top restaurants there were very snooty, the Federalist and Biba and Radius. Those were the big ones back then. And, uh, you know, all my top customers were professors and kind of like higher end people down there because there was all these developments in the North End, uh, new condos and co-ops and very rich people, walk, you know, worked in there. But the professor thing was always a consistent thing. Those were always my favorite customers too, uh, you know, because I have a tendency to kind of pontificate, you know, about wines or knowledge or anything. And the professors could really do that because that's what professors do. They pontificate for a living. But it was a great scene. Now the scene in New York, you know, well, I do work for myself now, so I can kind of say things that I could never say before. The problem I have with the New York scene is this, and I love that they are championing like, you know, wines, you know, like Somer Champigny or, you know, interesting, you know, wines from Jura or whatever, but how come everybody drinks the same wine? You know, that's something that like I don't understand. There is so much great wine out there. I travel, I see it, I taste it. I mean, I was in a restaurant in a small village in Champagne called Guy sur Seine, where one of my producers is from. And they had 25 Rose de Rices on the list. And I just was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen, you know? Um, in the New York scene, there's definitely, it's kind of, 
they all kind of just focus on a small, whatever the wine of the moment is, you know, whether if it's Clos Rougiard or Ganavat or whoever, and then it comes on to the next one. Now, and that, that for me, I've never like been like that. If you've followed my email blast or how I buy, it's just, it's never what the producer of the moment is or anything like that. I don't, I don't like the whole expression producer of the moment, you know, because the producer of the moment is never really a producer of the moment. You know, it's just something that like a bunch of people happen to like catch on to at the same time. It's almost like a cognitive kind of dissonance type of thing. But that used to be around before, but it was called Colt Cabernet. Uh, yeah, you're right. Definitely. But the Colt Cabernet thing, you know, it was something that I, and you know, I don't know about you was not as familiar with because it was a higher, higher price point. You know, and like all the hip wines now are definitely at affordable price points. Like affordable people can like drink them. It's not like a stretch to buy a bottle of Clos Rougiard anymore. You know. Well, I mean, well now I don't know the last time you bought one, but it is getting a little pricey. I mean, I love it for the value, but it's not cheap. It is not cheap anymore. It used to be cheap. I mean, I remember when it was thirty, fifty, sixty-five. I think, and Braz was around sixty. Um, and I and I definitely like Clos Rougiard, but I definitely think, you know, just like in sneakers and just like in hip-hop, it is way, way, way overhyped. You know, it's a wonderful wine, don't get me wrong, but it demands and it needs age. I've had some pretty inconsistent bottles because that have been a little bit funky. Um, and I think it's very good, you know, but I definitely don't think it deserves all the hype that it deserves. You know, I've had one profound bottle of Clos Rougiard, and I'm sure everyone's going to kill me for this. It was 96 Borg. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I mean, I've had plenty of profound bottles. A lot of them had 96 on it. Yeah, exactly. Because we had a ton of 96s. It's a great, actually, it's, I had the 96 Borg. You probably bought it now that I think about it. It was at the bar at Danielle. Yeah, they exactly. Had, when I worked at Danielle, we yes. had a, a huge amount of 96. I, Poyo so, and Borg. Peter Nelson. And it was great to compare the two because they were very different. Oh, they were very, very different. I preferred Borg, you know, just... Uh, but I don't think that that was necessarily the most profound wine. I just think that at that time, it had had enough age. Yeah, it wine. had enough age, and it, it was gorgeous. Because, you know, I mean, the big secret of Clos Rougiard is that the wines are woody, you know? I mean, if you like wood, you know, and Cabernet Franc, that's the estate for you. There's no question. They're very woody. I mean, personally, I think Thierry Germain is making better wines. Uh, yeah, I don't know that they're very woody. I mean, they have some wood. There's know. definitely wood, but they're <laughs> There's they're, definitely wood. I don't know that. I mean, old, new, it doesn't make a difference to me. Like, wood definitely influences a wine, you know, the tannins and the, and the weight and the intensity. And also, it takes a little longer, you know. I prefer now in Somer Champagne, I think Thierry Germain. And the thing is, Thierry Germain used to make over-extracted right, he used to be nasty wines. wines. Yeah. But he's made significant changes, you know? And uh, now he's, uh, I think he's definitely making the best wines in Somer Champagne, there's no question. But, you know, the distribution is not as good and they don't have the cachet because they haven't been discovered by the young kind of set in New York yet. I don't think know? it's just wood aging, though. I think it's probably that the Rougeard wines do a lot of evolution in the bottle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if they actually left it in wood for longer, they'd mm-hmm. be more approachable when yeah. they drank them. But they bottle it at this point. I've never visited, but they bottle it at a point where most of what happens is happening in the bottle at a slower pace. That is interesting. That's kind of like, I guess they're kind of like the... Uh the vintage port of uh, Somer Champagne. Well, it's like Edmund St. John. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the same, you know, those wines are also profound. If yeah, you they are. give them enough time. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yeah. Know? 96 Wiley Fanati recently yeah. floored me, absolutely floored me. Yeah, there's no question. But, you know, 
I mean, I, I think the young, hip sommeliers in New York are doing a fantastic job getting, you know, interesting wines out there. But, you know, I just kind of wish it wasn't the same 15 wines. And that's my only hope because, you know, I visit these producers and, you know, there are so much good wine being made out there. And, you know, one of my producers, this is a great story. All right. His name is Vincent Vincent Ledy. He's in Nuit Saint-Georges, two and a half hectares. You know, that's pretty much around the average size of some of my Burgundy domains. You know, I've, I made an appointment. I... I can't, I will not reveal how I find my producers. That's one thing I, I can't do because it's a very highly competitive game. I've already had other importers knocking on my guys' doors and I don't wish that to happen again. Because some people have accused you of doing that. What? Um, well, my situation is complicated because I live in New York and I'm licensed out of California. And there are many New York wines that I was buying at retail for a very long time that do not have West Coast importers. So of course, if I start my own company, I'm going to like, you know, try and go after some of my favorite wines if they're not represented on the West Coast. It's, I mean, it's a free market, you know, but there is definitely East Coast importers who feel they have an ownership or that I betrayed them. But at the end of the day, I just don't care, to be honest, because if the grower really like was happy with just having an East Coast importer, they wouldn't sell me any wine. I mean, and that's the end of the story right there, you know. Um, you know, one of the, one of, one of the producers, Nicholas Surrett of Dumi and Surrett, I loved his wines before, you know, I, I represent him now in California and now he only sells to his East coast person and me and that's it. And, uh, and it's kind of, you know, a wonderful thing. It was going to be a big deal. And I personally think that a lot of the people who are accusing me of this are incredibly short sighted because if my, I pre-sell most of my wines, I want to be the first one out there. Um, so if I send an email on a certain wine, then six months later, it comes into the East Coast distributor. Do you think anyone's really going to remember that I sold it for $39.99 six months ago? Of course not. You know, I mean, my wines don't live on Wine Searcher at all. They live on my blog. And, you know, I think there's, what, five people that read my blog at this point? <laughs> it used know? to be quite a bit. Yeah, it used to be it used to be quite a bit. And now it's just where the old offers lie. Um, but I care about the winemakers. I want them to have, you know, the greatest distribution possible. So if I'm selling wine on my list, because if I, like, sell a wine – People will pay attention to it, you know, and it will help the East Coast distributor or importer, whoever, sell through and it'll get the name out more. I mean, I actually have a wholesale deal for one of my wineries in Germany, Kaspari. I'm working with someone called Vineyard Collective. And, you know, I, I said, do you care if I sell some of these wines, you know, uh, you know, cheaper than you because I'm, you know, avoiding two tiers? I'm like, of course not. It'll help the presence of the brand. I'm like, Wow. How come you're the only person that actually sees that? You know, I just got dissed by another uh, champagne producer whose name I won't uh, mention, you know. And uh, the thing is, I could name the champagne producer and no one would have ever heard of the champagne producer. But the reason they dumped me was because they thought I was going to, uh, you know, harm their brand. And when in fact, uh, like if these good people see the forest actually through the trees, I am actually helping the brand. Because if I get behind a wine... People, maybe they won't buy from me, but they will remember it and they will buy it somewhere else. And that will help only the winemaker. And that's really what I care about the most is helping these winemakers, especially, I mean, because I am doing kind of a Herculean task here. You know, unknown winemakers selling them to people who have never heard of them and they have to wait six months to taste the wines. I mean, it's not the ideal situation. You know, I could just, you know, be some sort of Parker arbitrage if I wanted to, you know, and, you know, I'd be living a cushier life. But no, you know, I definitely have like a long-term vision, you know, because a hundred years ago, there was no Thierry Alamond. 
100 years ago, there was no Clarugiard. 100 years ago, there was no whoever. The great winemakers are born every day, you know, and who's to say that, like, you know, some of the pr producers in my book won't be the next, you know, Clarugiard or Egon Mueller or whoever, you know. If these people have to start somewhere. But back to the story about yes. your, the gentleman in Burgundy. All right, Vincent Ledy. So, you know, I write him and I get an appointment with him. And I get into his cellar and I go, wow. And I taste three or four wines. I'm like, you are a rock star. These wines are unbelievable. I'm like, there must be importers knocking at your door. He's like, you're actually the first people that have ever visited my cellar. I'm like, what do you mean the first people? He's like, yeah, no one's ever visited my cellar. It was in Nui St. George. I'm like, so where do you sell your wine? He's like, in Nui St. George. I'm like, so you're telling me the only exposure that you've ever gotten for your wines is in this little village. And Nui St. George is not a metropolis, okay? It's like a block. And, uh, and that's the only place he's ever sold his wines. And I'm like, that is unbelievable. And these are magical, beautiful wines. I mean, he doesn't have the greatest appellations because young producers in Burgundy, unless you're born with a particular last name, you aren't getting any good vineyards in Bon Romanet or Chambol Musin or Jerry Chambertin. You've just got to like get what you can get. So he's got like Shory Le Bon. He's got Savigny Le Bon. He's got, he just got his first Premier Crew, Nui St. George, Lep Cote de um, He uses no new oak. And here's the thing that I think. He prides himself on no new oak. He thinks, you know, it obfuscates terroir and gets in the way of that. You know, by the end of the day, like, I think, you know, he's, use, he's using that. He can't afford new oak at the end of the day, let's just put it that way. And he's using, it's a brilliant, you know, marketing thing, you know, because he's like, I'm not using any new oak. It obfuscates terroir. But then, you know, you go into a cellar and, you know, you really can't walk around because it's so small. And you kind of like, you know, here he's never sold wine outside New St. George. He's in really deep with the bank. And you're like, okay, you're using the no new oak as because you think it obfuscates terroir, but you really have no choice. So you're spinning it brilliantly. So I thought that was like really cool and interesting. But he's got so much passion and all these winemakers that like i'm using in burgundy that don't have like the you know the, the ritzy appellations they are among the most passionate winemakers that like i've met some of the more famous burgundian winemakers are kind of on autopilot you know they've got great 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 terroir um, and winemaking in Burgundy has improved so much since the 70s and even the 80s i mean there really aren't any bad vintages there's we're never going to have like another I came, you know, a 73 or a 79 or, you know, a 84. Those vintages will never happen again because winemaking is too good. And, you know, I'm going to use the dreaded T word. Technology is too good, too. You know, it's not like I'm importing technological sparky marquee wines. Don't get me wrong here, <laughs> you know, but it is a task. And the way it always works with my company is this. The first offer of a winery is like sometimes it's good. Depends how much like I'm behind the wine. I'm behind all my wines, but there is an absolute qualitative hierarchy that I can never, never ignore, you know, even with my producers. Um, you know, A is definitely going to be better than B. Who's going to be better than C, you know, but it's very hard to admit that because I find them, they're kind of, I treat them all like my children in a way. You've always been a really good spitter. Where did you pick that up? God, what's his, uh, what was his name? There was a guy at Brookline Liquor Mart. He was really into stereo equipment, Lloyd something. And he could be staring directly at you. There could be a bucket, I don't know, maybe seven feet to his left. And a perfect stream would come out of his mouth directly, you know, perpendicular to the bucket and would go right in the bucket. I learned everything about spitting from Lloyd. 
There was no question about it. He had like a white beard. He was the Redell specialist for. Uh, you know, working for Martinetti, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, and he was doing an the am- organ stuff. Yeah, he was an amazing, amazing spitter. You know, and I think in order to be a good wine taster, you have to be a decent spitter. You know, I've been to so many tastings and I've seen people, you know, it's just like they're in a hock and a loogies in the middle of a wine tasting. That's not any way to spit. It's got to be a perfect stream with no splash. If you can do it that way, then you, you know, I'm going to respect you. There's no question about it. And uh, even, even my winemakers love it because, you know, when you're, when you're tasting in a Burgundy or the Rhone in a cellar, there ain't no buckets. You know, you've you got to spit kind of in between the barrels or on the gravel or whatever. You don't want to get it on anybody. So I've, you know, I've definitely been complimented because of my spitting skills. And I really appreciate that, actually, Levy, because I take such pride in it. You know, every weekend, you know, I'm at the uh, the range. <laughs> <laughs> go long, go long. Exactly, exactly. You know, definitely trying it. So, when did you move to New York? Uh, well, I was born and raised here. If you have not been able to tell, um, and then I left to go to Boston University in 1993, and I moved back in February 2001, um, and I got a job. I mean, it's an interesting year to come back. Yeah, you know, tell me about 2001. it. I mean, it was a great time to come back in February 2001. No question about it. We all know what happened later in the year. That's actually what pushed me into retail because I tried to do the wholesale thing. I got fired from there. I'll admit it for criticizing how crappy the wines were. But now I look at it as a badge of honor. <laughs> and then I really, my palate was a little different then, I will admit. You know, I definitely liked kind of bigger wines back then. You know, your palate evolves, and I'm not ashamed to say uh, that. So I then got a job in July or, yeah, July with Eric Solomon. And at that point, Solomon's wines were with split between Winebow and Planner in New York. And he had a bunch of wines that he wanted to sell direct. He had a wholesale license, and that was my job, was to sell the direct wines. And, you know, these were kind of the runs of the litter, the really hard. Lots of Alsace Estate, lots of Priorat, um, some weird stuff from, you know, Cote Languedoc. And I was doing okay, building relationships. And then 9-11 happened. And, you know, the side effect for me was, you know, I was just starting out, you know, wholesale. I couldn't sell wine. I could not sell wine. I could not make a living. So after around a month and a half, you know, I just kind of quit Eric Solomon. And uh, I got a job at a store that does not exist anymore with the most inventive name for a wine shop ever called The Wine Shop, 82nd between first and second. And uh, that was my first job as a New York wine buyer. And uh, I championed the 01 German Riesling Vintage. Uh, That was kind of like my first big thing. And I loved working there. It was fantastic. I was buying all the German wine and all the Loire wine. And I mean, it wasn't, you know, I didn't have any categories. I was just buying the geek wines is what they they assigned to me. Did very, very well there. It was great. And I learned so much about the New York wine scene. And I learned that there were hundreds of distributors and everybody was an importer. And, you know, and there was nonstop people coming into the store all the time trying to, you know, get my attention, everything. And I tasted a lot of great wine there. You know, really met a lot of people and started kind of to make all the connections that, you know, would help me later in my career. Left the wine shop to work for the very famous Chamber Street Wines. Actually, Jamie came. uh, The reason Jamie came uh, to the store to try and hire me was because we didn't have any like muscadet at my store. (laughs) You know where this is going. And uh, so one of my top, top clients on my day off, he's like, I want Muscadet. 
And I'm like, all right, let's go to Chamber Street Wines. So, and he knew I was a wine buyer at the wine shop. And I went to the Chamber Street Wines and he spent like $350 on Muscadet, my client, you know, and Jamie, you know, thought it was pretty magnanimous, I guess, of me. And uh, he pretty much is just like, that's great. Can you manage Chamber Street Wines? And I'm like, I don't know. Let me think about it. And then like three weeks later, I thought about it and I went back and I'm like, I'd love to manage Chamber Street Wines. And they hired a good friend of mine to do it, Noel Sure, Just give him a little shout out. He has a great store in North Carolina called Cav Toro. You all should go there. And anyway, he basically uh, hired Noel. So I started working there under Noel as a salesperson. And Chamber Street Wines definitely was the biggest, most influential store that I worked at in New York. And I did two uh, tours of duty there. The first one, I was just kind of wandering around as a cashier, selling wine, being a salesperson, wearing those snazzy aprons. Um, And that was definitely the heyday. And just to give you a very, very funny story, we could not sell Overnois to uh, save our lives. We could not. There was one weird graduate student who would come in once every six weeks, walk around the entire store and leave with like a bottle of the Pulsard, you know, and it was like 25 bucks. And then like every time a bottle would leave, David Lilly would just be like, oh, thank God, another bottle finally gone. We got to get rid of this one case. Boy, have times changed. I mean, it would, and then there was another, another wine we couldn't get rid of. It was a champagne by, and it was very expensive for the time. The cuvées were all fifty to sixty dollars, and you couldn't, you didn't know the names of the cuvées because they're around the net neck label. It was a producer named David Lechlepart, and now that is around as cult of champagne as it gets. And uh, we could not move the stuff. And I actually drank a lot of Lechlepart and Auvergnat because you know the wines were accessible. You know, I mean, I couldn't drink any of the Huet; it just came and went. But the, it was very accessible stuff. And it was, it, was, it was delicious. And it's just so funny how now everyone, everyone, and I mean everyone freaks out about Auvergnois. And rightfully so. The wines are very, very, very good. But it's not like all the people who champion Auvergnois now have like discovered Auvergnois. It could not move for a very long time. And it was still the same wine then as it is now. I always find things like that very funny. That's one thing I find funny about just the whole young wine scene. They discover wines. I don't know if I would say they discover wines. They kind of happen to catch up to wines, I would say. It would definitely be like a better thing, you know? You know, like discovering wines, I'd say that's more what I do, <laughs> to be perfectly honest, because, you know, I mean, um, if you are on my email list, which I know you are, have you heard of many of the producers, would you say? No. I yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, that's Except for just, the ones you get in trouble for. Yeah, the <laughs> ones I get in trouble for, you know. But, you know, I need to throw some recognizable names in there because there I There was that Keller Red offer, I believe. And oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. I've heard of Keller. <laughs> yeah, I've got to throw some recognizable names in there because, like, I've got to establish, like, the level of wines that people don't know. Because, like, I believe the level of the wineries that I represent that people don't know are the same level as, like, today I did a four-yard offer, you know, or and I've done Keller offers. I've done, what else if I sold, you know, that's been controversial. Um, you know, a couple things here and there. Because I want to establish that my, you know, let's say, Vincent Ledy or Julian Cruchando, these two guys in Burgundy, or Domaine d'Alexandrin, you know, in Saint-Joseph, 
are at the same qualitative level as some of the other producers that are famous out there because you've got to make a connection. That's one thing. If you're selling something that no one has ever heard of, you have to make some sort of connection or link to something that people have actually heard of. You can't just like write an email and be like, this wine is so great. It tastes like raspberries and it's really got great terroir or whatever. It won't sell. You've got to be like, yeah, you know, I'd say the only one, you know, I just sold this Thierry German wine called Chloroman, 538 bottles from an 11th century wall vineyard, Shannon, 100%. It's, I mean, I think it's probably, I think it's one of the most exciting dry Shannon's being made right now. I mean, his first vintage was 10. I sold the 11 and it's just a stunning, stunning wine. But the reason that email did well and the reason I sold so much of that wine is because, you know, I made a direct comparison to Clorue's Yard Brez, which is something people have heard of on my list at least. But isn't that uh, kind of the Rimmerman move? But yeah, and he is definitely the father of the email blast. And I am definitely, he's definitely a big influence of mine. There's no question. I mean, you know, if it wasn't for John, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. Uh, you know, but you've, there's a reason that he did it because people won't buy something they've never heard of. If at least there isn't some sort of comparison to a famous village or a famous appellation or a famous producer. It's just part of the game as Omar Little says. So you're working at Chamber Street Wine, and when do you run into Joe Dresner? Um, he came in one day, you know, on his bike with his, uh, you know, his bike helmet, you know, uh, to harass David Lilly, you know, because that's the way David would phrase it. He'd be like, oh, Joe is coming to harass me, you know. And, uh, you know, we hit it off because we were kind of two peas in a pod in a way. Neurotic, very opinionated New York Jews who are into wine. You know, that was me and Joe. And Joe was a friend of the store, obviously. Him and David go way, way back. And, uh, you know, he it seemed like he was pouring, you know, wines every other week in the store. And we became very friendly. And, uh, you know, I definitely considered him one of my very, very good friends. We, we kind of shared that same kind of, we love the world, but we criticize the world at the same time type of vibe, you know? And, uh, and we never, and we talked about wine, but me and Joe, our friendship was definitely based on things more about wine. I mean, the first things we talked about usually were like, he was always, he, I always had some new cell phone. He was always like, when is this cell phone you got, Lyle? I mean, I'm always behind the times. What do you got? What should I get? So we had this connection of cell phones, you know, and then the wire. It's funny because he had that whole thing about not, not liking iPhones yeah, for a long time. Exactly. He's exactly. like, it's amazing that Steve Jobs convinced all these people to buy a phone that doesn't work, you know, uh, as a phone. You know? I know. It's so true. It's so true. I mean, he really made some incredible points about things that were, you know, mundane that no one thinks about. He would really make profound points about the mundane. That was one of his great specialties. And, uh, and then it was then The Wire. I mean, that was either the thing that we really, really clicked on, you know, um, and just, you know, kind of film and art in general. He was a big film geek as well as I. I mean, we would talk about wine, but that was not Joe's favorite thing to talk about. You know, there's no question. Whenever we would hang out, it was definitely more about kind of just art and life. He was a big gossip, you know. I mean, if we're talking about wine, it's definitely people in the wine industry, less, you know, less about like actual like wines and their qualities, you know. But he was he was a presence there. He definitely, definitely was. And then when I left Chambers to open Crush, I opened that wine store called Crush Wine and Spirits on 57th Street. I bought a ton of Dresner wine because, I mean, then... Back in 2005, 2006, you could definitely open a store and buy most of the portfolio. You can't do that anymore because it's just so huge. You know, I think there's, I think they had. There's two. also more demand for it now. Yeah, there's definitely more demand. Back then, I mean, it was Chamber Street Wines, 
And then when I opened Crush, that was the second Dresdner outpost in New York. There really wasn't any others uh, at all, you know, I mean, and it was very hard to move those wines. I remember you, know? you sent me a mixed case and it was the first time I'd had the Puzzolat uh, Pinot d'Anis. Oh, wow. That was a great wine. That was a very, very good wine. There's no question. Oh, man. I definitely miss those days because when, you know, when you were drinking Dresdner wines and, you know, you were hanging out with Joe and, you know, you know, it definitely kind of felt like you were in kind of like a secret club, I guess, in a way, because, you know, they were all so delicious and, you know, Puzzola and Pepier and, you know, Luna Papin and, you know, Baudry and, you know, you're like, why doesn't everybody else like these wines? Famous last words. Um, you know, now, you know, they're very, very hard to get certain wines that I never thought would be hard to get, like, ever. You it's know? like the speakeasy of uh, wine importers. Mm -hmm. It's like, exactly. I feel like I'm in a secret club. Oh, everyone else wants to come here. Yeah, exactly. Oh, you know, but you, at the end of the day, you're, you're, you're happy for the producers because it is, at the end of the day, it really is all about the producers. Um, well, and, I think that was a big David Lilly. Yeah. Drive, drive home. Thing. That's what David really influenced me about. I mean, if it wasn't for David, I would probably definitely, you know, he took me on my first trip to Burgundy. Although it was definitely classic David Lilly, nine producers in one day with Jean-Marie Deschamps, like boom, 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 boom. Um, you know, and of course, you know, my first night in Burgundy with David Lilly, where did we eat? A Chinese restaurant. <laughs> of course. Didn't you get like sick or something like that? What? Oh, God. Yeah, I was definitely sick and I missed the appointment of Mayo Camazé. And I was like really upset too because I really wanted to like visit Mayo and taste and everything. You Have know? you done that since? No, I haven't. I've tasted Mayo once, but I still haven't tasted with him. I mean, at the occasional Wildman tasting, you know, but the biggest shock was like, you know, I just wanted to go to see David Lilly's reaction to the Mayo wines. You know, that was like the real thing. And then David comes back. He's like, you know, Lyle these male wines you know how i am you know how my palate is these transcend all of my views these are this is just great wine and i'm like what did john john something mayo i can't remember right now put in your wine david and i'm like you actually went to mayo camazay and you love the wine she's like sensational i'm like wow but uh and that was it was a great trip it was me and david and uh joe dresner traveling around france i will definitely never forget that trip we started in Deauville at the De Bote, the Natural Wine Fair. How many people were there that year? Not many, although it was in this like amazing high-end convention center, like a Javits convention center, but like the Deauville version. You know, there really weren't that many people at it. I think the only people that I remember of the New York's wine scene that were there besides me and David uh, were Alex Miranda and Maya the the girl who works for uh, I th I don't know if she still works for Joe does she yeah she's yeah. great yeah, she's yeah. like one of my favorite people but uh, those are the only people that I remember being there and it was a it was a blast first of all because I think that might have been the last Deve before everyone started going to the Deve I mean you know that night in the restaurant I was very lucky to sit next to Anselm Salas and you know he was just pouring all this crazy wine and everyone was like singing these songs and you know. It was just it was it was it was a seminal moment for me. There's no question in those two days because and the Dave was just great because it was not that crowded. You could really spend time with the winemakers. You know, it took me back to my Grateful Dead days too because half the winemakers looked like deadheads. So that was really cool for me. It was terrific. It was definitely a terrific experience. And then Burgundy, excuse me, Macon, uh, Beaujolais. Well, Beaujolais is where I got sick, like really sick. Uh, we went to dinner at Michel Tet, great great Julianoff producer. And I'd never had a home-cooked French meal in my life, ever. 
you know, and he's bringing all these different meats and pâtés and all this stuff, and he's bringing all these old wines out, you know, and I didn't know if I was ever going to get this opportunity again. So I'm drinking and drinking and eating all this great stuff, and pretty much uh, Tet, you know, in my drunken like happiness, you know, Tet's like, "Do you want to see the vineyards in the morning?" I'm like, "Sure." Pick me up at 7 a.m. Yeah, that was not the right move. Um, so the morning comes at 7 a.m. And, uh, you know, I am downstairs and I have not been this hungover in a very long time. And Beaujolais, if you haven't been there, has hills. It definitely has hills. Um, so I'm in the car with Tet. And there was also someone who worked for Joe on the trip, Sean. She was his national sure, Sean Mead. Sean Mead, his national sales importer. And pretty much like we're driving on the hills and I am just totally spinning, you know. And, you know, and Ted's like, and here's this parcel and this parcel. And I'm just like, uh, I'm trying to be very polite. I'm like, could you please pull over just right now? I mean, I had to yak. And I'm like, could you please pull over? You know, and then he's not really like pulling over and his English was like, okay. I'm like, you need to stop the car right now, please. You know, and he understands and he stops the car. I lean out, just toss it. And I get back to the hotel and, you know, Joe and Sean and David are like, okay, we're off to go to Charnay to see Jean-Paul Brun and Eric Texier. And, you know, I'm in a hotel in Julianas in the middle in the middle of nowhere in February. And Beaujolais, you know, there's a lot of chemicals there. So it looks like Mars pretty much. It's like a nuclear wasteland of a wine you know, a region, you know, in February. And I'm like, let me just take a taxi there. You know, the typical New Yorker, you know, I mean, there's like nothing around. And Joe's like, good luck getting a cab. And I'm like, listen, I just have to just sleep. And like, I'll just meet you a taxi. Okay. Like I can figure it out, you know. And then some words were said. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> and uh, I went into my room, fell asleep, woke up, and like I said, I had the hotel people get me a cab, and it cost me 60 euros to get to Texas, and I just met him in the middle of the tasting. You know, but that's what you do on wine trips. You just got to persevere. There's no question. But it was just really memorable, you know, just having Joe there, seeing his interaction with the winemakers, seeing how the deals are made and everything, because it's, it's definitely, I learned more or less about the deal and more about the relationship. Uh, you know, when you're there, because that's how you kind of do business with certain uh, winemakers, I've noticed, you know, you'll have five minutes of business and four hours of drinking and tasting and hanging out with their, you know, their family and their cat and their dog and whatnot. And, you know, and that's the part of it that's wonderful, because when you choose this business, as I'm sure you know, it is a lifestyle choice. I am definitely not going to be the next Bill Gates or whoever and make trillions and trillions and billions of dollars. You know, I hope to be successful and, you know, raise a family and put a roof over my head and my family's head. But uh, it's a lifestyle choice. If I wanted to make money, I would have been a hedge fund manager. But to take it back to the wine a little bit, mm -hmm. what are some of the key moments you had with wine? I remember there was a time with the bottle of Latash that seemed to leave a big impact on you. Yes. As I've said, you know, the wines I like are the wines that I like, and I don't care if it's Latash or if it's some, you know, little Sommer Champagne. But we all remember a restaurant called Crew uh, in New York, and uh, that was during kind of the wine boom. And I was there with a very, very dear friend of mine. She took me out for my birthday, um, and we had a lovely, lovely bottle of 99 D'Angerville Clos de Duc. And it was beautiful. I'm like, wine cannot get better than this. It was stunning. And then, you know, uh, Shay, Shay Galante was his name? Yes, the yeah. chef, yeah. Pasta was incredible, you know. And then after the meal, I'm like, let's just go have a beer at the bar because they had that great bar crew in that little room up front. So we go, and 
at the bar, well, there's my old boss from Crust was to the right. I'll just say that. Drinking Denny Bashley at 98 Charm. He offered me a glass. I had it, and I'm like, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. You know, not bad. And this was before Bachelet like erupted. I usually um, really like Bachelet Charm like a great deal. Yeah, I like it too. Not that I don't like Dangerville. I like Dangerville yeah. a great deal too. Dangerville is delicious, but this Bachelet Charm, I don't know, maybe it was just the context or how good the Dangerville was or – uh, or maybe, you know, I think also 98s, the 90, 98s. A little, little hard for a while. Yeah, 98s in, this was 06. 98s and 06 were hard. You know, that's eight years after vintage. They were awkward. Um, it, it really didn't show that well, I'll be honest. But then, I'll do some name dropping. At the next table is Robert Poor, Ned Benedict, and Frederick Ongerer, the president of Chateau Latour, and then a wine collector that many people know, Eddie Milstein. And they're drinking some wine. And I, I spied with my little eye the wonderful label of Latosh. And it's a big bottle of Latosh. And, uh, you know, I go and I say hello because Ned was my friend then. And, you know, he's a good guy. And I'm like, hey, Ned, what's going on? And I knew Robert. You know, I've been to crew a bunch of times. You know, and then I leave, you know, and then Ned puts a glass in front of me, a big glass. And he's like, it's 53 Latosh. Enjoy. Out of mag. I ain't never had anything like this before in my life. I know there are other wines like that that other people have had, and I'm very jealous of them, I will admit, because this was, you know, this was, I can't even, it, it, it makes me pause. Because you just, you know, when you have that wine and you just are like, it surpasses all of your sensory experiences that you've had in your life before, up to that point, and you just can't believe things can get better, and then it does get better, and then you know there is a level of better even after that. It just it's a it's an intense moment, you know. I'm sniffing it, and I'm just like I can't even believe. First of all, I couldn't believe how youthful it was. This was not a Rudy bottle, trust me. Um, I was sniffing it, it was just like youthful and old at the same time. And you know, and and I sipped it, and I was with my friend, you know, who bought me the dinner in the '99 Donjerville, you know, and uh, I mean. This made us forget about the 99 Dangerville like in a millisecond because, you know, I have this thing called the absolute qualitative hierarchy, you know, and this is at the top and will always be at the top until something else surpasses it. I mean, this was just, I can't explain it. It was just like pure heaven. The flavor intensity, the array of flavors, there was, you know, maybe 37, 38 different flavors going on in the wine, but they're all perfectly integrated in this beautiful sphere. And the sphere, I know, is what people talk about when they talk about like perfectly aged Romani Conti, but there's got to be a little sphere uh, in Latash as well. And, you know, and just where it places, the, the, this is what people don't talk about a lot, just where the wine places on your palate. I think is a very important thing. And it just placed everywhere in this like weird kind of like order. I don't know how to describe it. It sounds really wacky. I call it hierarchy of flavor, but also there was a hierarchy of texture and, and all these, all these different things. I mean, I never experienced anything like it since I never experienced anything like it after either. I think I just said the same thing in two different ways, <laughs> <laughs> but so, you know, we we're drinking this and and my friend she is she still the great thing about that moment also was that we both still haven't had a wine that good and she's a very experienced wine drinker as all you know and so after we have it you know it was probably a six to seven ounce pour i would say i mean it was the greatest wine i've ever had it was just it was a near religious experience and i am not religious at all and basically wine was done and this is the most remarkable part about it uh, I'm like, well, we can't have anything after that. Let's just have another beer. So we had a beer, 
And the whole time that I was drinking the beer and same with her, all we could taste was the Latash. I mean, it was crazy. And then the next morning when I woke up, all I tasted in my mouth was Latash. And I just, I don't understand how it was possible. I just don't understand. I mean, I think obviously the combination of terroir, the Magnum format, Milstein cellar, set and setting definitely I think will uh, be important in that because it was on my birthday and I was drinking it next to my old boss who was drinking 98 Bachelet Charm and I was drinking a better wine. That like never happens. <laughs> so I was pretty happy about that as well. So that all contributed to it. It was just kind of, you know, you know, in those wine moments when everything just clicks, but qualitatively it still crushes anything I've ever had. I mean, I'm, I'm just going back there right now, just thinking about it. Like it's just, you know, I mean, I could have died at that moment and I would have been completely satisfied with my life. So before that happened, you were at Crush, mm -hmm. and you had hired Joe Salamone. Joe, my man, Joe, my favorite person to like shoot the breeze about wine in all the New York wine business. Uh, there is just actually make that nationally. I mean, there is no question he is the most intelligent person about wine by far in the New York wine business. I mean, the way he can communicate wine, and he is honest as they can be. I mean, I you know like he was hired as like a stock guy at crush. I mean, he was like moving boxes. I mean, it was amazing. Talk about like, you know, the wrong guy for the wrong position, you know, but like, I'm, I'm glad that we got him, you know, because then he is a natural. I mean, you know, he's Robert Redford when it comes to like wine. Uh, he just has an understanding of it. Like no one else I've ever met. And like, he can explain flavors and things wines do like no one else. It's just, and he's so polite and calm and serene about it. And he doesn't push anything on anybody. He's the only one that I know that doesn't push anything on anybody. Customer will call about the whatever the, the crush email is. You know, is this really worth it? Should I buy it, Joe? Joe's like, no. I mean, who does that? Nobody. I mean, he's just as good as they come. You know, as, as my people say, he's a mensch. <laughs> a total mensch. And he's... I mean, he's pickier than me. That's the funny thing. Like Joe and Stephen Bitterolf both were kind of like hired as stock guys at Crush. And now Stephen has Von Bowden, you know, and Joe is the lead wine buyer at Crush. And, you know, they've surpassed me, I guess, palate wise. You know, the mentees always surpass the mentor. But, you know, I don't look at it as like any type of like professional jealousy or anything. I'm proud of them, you know. They came in as like stock guys and now look at me, you know, they both are some of the most important like wine guys in New York. I think it's terrific, to be honest. But I haven't drank wine of Joe in a long time. And it's definitely, it's definitely due because when he is my, f I don't drink wine as often as people probably think I do. But when I do, I definitely want to be drinking of Joe. Like I'll open my best bottles for him and he'll open his best bottles for me because we just kind of have that. He will be I mean, he should be an importer, I think, or something. You know, he, I mean, Joe set free in the world to discover wines. That'd be the best portfolio you'll ever get. Like, no question. So, at what point did you start playing around with email blasts? Was that at Crush then, or was that then later at Chamber Street? Actually, it's much earlier. I started playing with email blast at the wine shop on 82nd, but that I was, it, it's not legit. I'll be honest. It was just Parker Arbitrage. You know, I would just scan the wine advocate because that's what my boss wanted me to do. And, you know, oh, Castaño Solanera, 92 points, $9. I'll order 100 cases and blast it through an email. But that's not email blasts in my world. You know, that's just anybody can do that. But when it really started, 
was at Crush is when it really started. Because, you know, Crush in the beginning, you know, it was complicated. Just like opening any business is complicated. And I was really pushing for an email program. I'm like, it's the way wine is sold. You know, look at, and this was when Garazis was coming up. And I'm like, we, we can sell a lot of wine through email. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. And then we started and it, it worked okay. You know, there were some emails that worked. And then I decided, I, I'll never forget this. You know, some rep came in and they're like, you know, Phelps Insignia is the wine of the year. I'm like, that's not my wine of the year. You know what my wine of the year is? Chloros Blanche Cabernet. That's my wine of the year. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to write an email. I'm going to call it my wine of the year. And I wrote an email and called it my wine of the year. And we sold three pallets. And that is how the email blast program was pretty much born at Crush. Everyone saw the power of the email and was like, oh my God. And, uh, and then the rest is history there. I still think Crush is definitely one of the best in the game for the emails, you know. I was writing them, and then there was a collaborative writing them, and then Stephen was writing them, and I think Joe writes them now with the help of a couple of other people, you know, but I still read every single crush email. And then when I went to Chambers after, I did email blasts there. Definitely different management and a different thing, you know, because, you know, these email blasts are definitely, there is a hype factor to them. You've got to definitely make people want to buy the wine. Because before I write an email, I ask myself one question. Why should someone buy this wine? There is no question that is important as that. Because if you can't answer that question, you can't send that email. Because you need to find, you know, three or four reasons why people should buy that wine. You know, what makes it unique? Is it a good, is it cheaper than everything else? Uh, is it the only uh, wine in the country? You know, uh, no one else can get it. You know, all these different things, you know, are important. Are you buying like some rare seller or whatever? You've got to be able to answer that question. If you can't answer the question, the email will fail. And I have learned that with fast selections. Believe me. And then I did it at Chambers. It was wildly successful at Chambers. Great. And then, you know, the great economic kind of collapse happened in 2008. I got laid off from Chambers along with a lot of other people, New Year's Eve, 2008. And I was unemployed for nine months. It was the darkest nine months of my life because, like, I'm, I'm a doer and there was not much to do because it was really hard to get a job during that time. Really hard. Oh, my God. And, uh, and then someone knew my email blast at Chambers and they wanted me to write emails. I think I only lasted five or six emails. There was way too much micromanagement of like each line and analysis. Um, and it wasn't the store to do it with just, you know, I sold five cases in the first email and I'm like, this is the worst, biggest disappointment ever. And they're like, this is the best email we've ever done. I'm like, Hmm. Um, so I didn't work there. And then someone hired me. Uh, Daniel Posner of Grapes the Wine Company, and I wrote a bunch of emails for him. I was doing two or three blasts a week for him, and that's where I definitely got the idea. Like, if I'm doing two or three blasts a week for him and I'm selling X amount of wine, I could probably be doing three or four blasts for myself with producers that I've discovered and have a company. And that's kind of where Fast Elections, the seeds were planted. And you'd also written a well-read blog for a number of years, mm-hmm. like, over six years, six, seven years. Yeah, that is right. I was, yeah, I, I keep forgetting that I was a blogger too. And all it was at the assistance of a friend also. He's like, you should blog. You have so much to say. You know, I think he just wanted me to shut up. Shut up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, which, which can happen, you know, definitely. If I want to hear from you, I'll Google search you. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I wrote the blog. I was one of the first wine bloggers. Back then it was Dr. Vino, Hardy Wallace's blog, Dirty and Rowdy. 
Um, there was some dude from Canada, Joe's Wine Blog. It was a very small community. We Most of us knew each other. I think this was before Gary V's video blogs. I think this was before One Wine Dude. But it was um, like uh, old school, old world or something like that. Yes. Remember that? Oh, my God. Was Joe that Mannequin. Yeah, Joe Mannequin. Joe Mannequin. Yeah. And a customer of Fast Elections, a happy one, too. Great guy, Joe Mannequin. Um, yeah, that was good because he was the only person that was doing the same thing. Because my blog in the beginning was very weird. It was, you know, I'd write about wine and then I'd like, this was before Facebook and social media. I was embedding hip hop videos. It was old school hip hop videos from the early 90s and wine. That was my blog. That's what it was. Um, and it became very well read. And, you know, Eric Asimov gave me some shout outs to the New York Times because it was very, I like having freedom. I've always liked having freedom. Um, and the blog was freedom. I could write whatever I wanted. I learned later, you can't write whatever you want because there's a consequence for everything. But, you know, now, though, because when you wrote back then before Facebook and Twitter and all types of social media, you know, and there weren't that many kind of hits for certain things, I would write about a lot of things and the, the, you, you would search for whatever and my blog would always come up. Still, even now, you can search certain things and my blog still comes up as like one of the only hits. It's very, very strange, uh, even after all these years. So, you know, I would definitely get some blowback from wine producers or wine importers or wine distributors, you know, saying whatever, you can't write that about my wine, you've got to do that because it was all about Google search algorithms, you know. If I write like this California Viognier sucks and I had a particular you know, words in there, um, it would always come up and it would damage their brand. They, people would have to ask me change things and stuff. But I love writing my blog. It was fun. I mean, I still write thought leadership pieces now if I can, but it's really, I'm just so busy, you know, writing these emails, like a constant thing. I'm doing three emails a week now. Just got to constantly be writing them. So there's not much time to write kind of independent pieces on my blog anymore. You know, I'm sure you can relate to that too. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, exactly. You know, but I love it. But, you know, but Rocks and Fruit is definitely, you know, it's an interesting, it's still a good brand out there and I like it, but you know, blogging is, I think, uh, you know, because of Facebook and, you know, well, not really Facebook, I think more kind of like Twitter. Twitter kind of yeah. took over. Yeah, yeah. Twitter definitely took over and I see Instagram actually overtaking Twitter eventually. Although Twitter's fantastic. It's Twitter's really, really held wine. I mean, it's the first place I learned that, you know, LVMH bought Clota Lombre. I mean, it's the first place where I learned about Rudy Kurniawan getting indicted, you know. I mean, back in the day, you would find the wine news on like wine bulletin boards, but now those are just a, you know, I call, you know, I think, you know, the hierarchy of internet is, you know, YouTube commenters and then wine bulletin boards are like right below. <laughs> you know, I just, I don't, I used to post a lot on them, but there just became this inexplicable thing where everything I was posting was some sort of tactic to sell wine, you know? On your part. Well, yeah, of course, you know, because like, like kind of a subconscious thing, like I'm going to say this and I'd like to sell more of this. Well, that's what I was accused of. You know, if I was just writing a review of a wine, because I used to write tasting notes on, you know, Parker's board uh, and then later wine berserkers, I was just being accused of a shill constantly, 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 constantly. And it was just too much. And, you know, you can't, you know, because, you know, anybody who knows me knows that I'm passionate about wine and I'm going to write about the wines I sell, wines I don't sell. It doesn't really matter. If I want I like, I'm going to write about it. And just the accusations of just being a shill were just like way too much. And it was like the farthest from like anything that I was actually really intending on doing, you know? Like, what am I going to write? You know, like, this wine is great. I have it for sale. Like, and all those people are going to buy it from me? Of course not. That's just, even if that was allowed, it still wouldn't work. It was a place for, you know, release where I could just like share 
opinions and discussions with like-minded people. But after you're attacked for so long, it just gets old. I don't think I've posted on any wine bulletin and boards. Well, you know, I mean, the big one, Wine Berserkers, I just have not posted on that in so long. And that's and they kind of ran me out of town on that board because I was just constantly being accused of a shill. And it was just it just gets old after a while, especially if it's not true. What but, about your engagement with German wine? One of the first wines that ever had any impact on me was 93 J.J. Prune Belliner Sonner Cabinet. Um, I brought it home for a Thanksgiving vacation, and I remember I was drinking it with my stepmother's mother, and she's like, this is incredible. It's so low alcohol. It doesn't taste like wine. It tastes like fruit juice. You know, I'm like, yeah, this is German wine. They're terrific. They're sweet, but they have acidity, and they have tension. They're wonderful, and they're cheap. That bottle, I think, was $14, and... This is going to sound so horrible, but like if you're involved in the wine business and you have like any type of like brain power, you have to understand that German wine, sweet or dry, is the greatest wine value in the world for white wine. And if not the greatest in the world, because, you know, Riesling is an incredible prism, I guess, of terroir. It really just shows it so well. It's so transparent. There's so much great i mean in germany there is just so much great terroir there's so many great expressions of riesling dry sweet and everything in between it's got the rich history just like burgundy does because people when people don't understand things and this is not just about german wine this is about anything they just like to pigeonhole it and say it's too complicated and then they can dismiss it even though they know they probably in the back of their head they would really like it you know like that's the way i look at opera i've heard opera i like what i've heard but then I like research and I'm like, this is too overwhelming. And I'm like, I can't deal with it, even though I know I like it. I think that's what a lot of people's attitudes about German wine are, because German wine law, too many syllables. Actually, it's probably the simplest wine reason to understand if you just put a little bit of work in. And if you put a little bit of work in, you're, the, the rewards are just endless, you know. Uh, I mean, you can still find a profound bottle of German wine for under $20. That will age for 25 plus years. And go through, you buy a case of that, you're going to catch that wine in primary, secondary, tertiary, quaternary, if that even exists, uh, you know, flavors. And it's just, and they're easy to drink. And it's a really good wine to convert people as well into the world of white wine in general. Because it's such a good gateway wine, I'd say as well. And just the quality is so high for the money. I mean, it's just, you know, I have that whole absolute qualitative hierarchy thing that I talk about. And, you know... German wine is very high quality for the money you're getting. What's the most expensive German dry wine? I mean, forget the outliers like G-Max from Keller. Expensive German dry wine is probably, you know, 85, 95, 100 bucks. And for $100, you're getting the best wine of an entire like country. I'd say that's pretty good. And then you have all these great things, you know, between 30 and 60, getting like the top best thing, the best wines from the best terroirs. Just, I just don't understand like why you would buy lesser wines from lesser regions that are more expensive, that are more well-known when the quality is better in Germany. I just don't get it. And, and don't even start that sugar thing with me because I will destroy it. <laughs> you know, German wines are too sweet. No, the German wines you've had are too sweet. <laughs> That's the thing that people don't get. You know, if you've had one German wine and it's sweet, does that mean they're all sweet? No. And they're that line of thinking, if you apply that to other things in life, can be very dangerous. And for some reason, that line of thinking is always applied to German wine. Oh, German wine is all sweet. No, it isn't. German wine can be sweet, and it can be so enamel ripping off your teeth dry that you are crying for your mommy. 
All right. Like, and everything in between, there can be a little bit of sweetness. And, uh, you know, and that's the thing that I would love to change the conversation about German wine. Cause I don't want the conversation to be about, is it sweet? I want the conversation to be like, what's the difference between, you know, Herakrets and Holberg? You know, why is Felsenek different than Felsenberg? Because all the Burgundy geeks, all they talk about is the difference between, you know, Von Romane Croparento and Von Romane, you know, Scham or whatever, and the intricate differences in soil type and this and that and blah, 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 blah. And they can talk about it endlessly. German wine, even like the most intense Burgundy connoisseur will be like, oh, is it sweet? And I'm like, why are you saying that? Don't you want to know what the terroir is, what the difference is, or what the nuances are? It's always, is it sweet? Even, you know, the most experienced drinker. I'll, I'll be fighting that to, to the end of time. But to give a great example, the tide is turning. And I don't mean to be overtly cynical, but I just did an offer for an 01 Trocken and a 94 Auschlace. And the 01 Trocken sold four times more than the 94 Auschlace. And I don't know if that's like a kind of, a market like change or it's just because these are my customers and you know i promote german dry wine and i have been forever it's probably that because i definitely do better with german dry offers than i do with german sweet offers but the average store if they sent out a trocken email and a spate email uh the spate would sell a lot more there's like no question about that even though people don't like german wine because it's really sweet You know, and that's the other thing. People don't like German wine because it's really sweet. Yet, what's the number one selling beverage in the United States? It's either Coke or Pepsi. I'm not sure. Yeah, exactly. And what's the number one of the what's the number one selling wine uh, in restaurants? We all it's uh, Sonoma Coutrere Chardonnay. I mean, I'm sure there's a good dollop of residual sugar in that wine, and there's a good dollop of residual sugar in Kendall Jackson Chardonnay. You know, I think the difference is is German wines are sweet and fruity at the same time. And this is too much of a similarity for people to make any type of distinction. Because there is a distinction there, you know? Cabinet, Auschlace, Spätlace is not a measurement of sweetness, despite the fact that most people think it is. It is a measurement of ripeness, but it can also cross over into sweetness. But if you, you I've had Auschlace trokens that are the farthest thing from sweet. And I've had Auslaces, you know, that I have to go to the dentist after because, you know, they hit my nerves and my teeth. But that's the great thing about German wine right there is the diversity of it. And it's, that's what, you know, I have to keep pounding the pavement and promoting the diversity of German wine is that you can find everything. And there's Spapergunder and there's Pinot Gris and there's Pinot Blanc and there's Scheurebe and there's all types of stuff. You know, I mean, it's only 1% of the world's wine production. But they still, when I go to Germany, besides maybe a handful of estates, they all want to export more. They all want to export more. And, you know, and these are small production wineries, cuvées that are 400, 500, 600 bottles, 1,000 bottles, and constantly. But uh, I'm in this for life, the German wine thing. Even though with my own company, it's still 70% French, 30% German. That's what I sell. In the beginning, I thought it was going to be 50-50. But no, the people have spoken. So what's next for LaFest? Uh, I really want to grow. I mean, I am all in on fast elections. You know, we've been open March 2013 is when we opened. I think we have sold 235 different wines uh, or SKUs, maybe that, maybe 215 wines out of 235. We've done some repeats. I'd like to grow my list because that's the key, you know, to fast elections. It's an email blast thing. 
So I'd like to keep growing my list. And, you know, I definitely am working on getting some of my wines wholesale. Um, but it's definitely, you know, it's definitely difficult. I definitely have Kaspari on the way to New York, which is one of my German estates, the third best estate in Ankirch. Um, you know, I got to give props to my boys, Pfizer Kunstler and Imic Bacheriaberg. I've got them in New York, and hopefully I can get a couple of new estates in New York. I'm looking at Connecticut. I'm looking at New Mexico. I'm looking at Texas. And all those states, I'm definitely looking at bringing in kind of like inexpensive, high-quality, you know, German wine leaders and things like that just to like get people, you know, because it is the gateway wine, you know, to get people to discover kind of like interesting things, you know, and always improving my operations and logistics because I've always been a wine guy, you know, a wine geek. And now that I'm the CEO of my own company, I'm dealing with a lot of other things as well. And I've got to definitely improve myself in logistics, operations, and shipping, and all of that stuff. But that'll just come with time and experience and getting yelled at by my customers. <laughs> Isle Fass, he's a fascinating man. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you so much for inviting me. This hour flew by. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.